Hey guys, um, so I was t saying the other day, I, I don't know about the rest of you, but after Tuesday, I've kind of crawled into a hole and have not wanted to be around people. And so uh, I feel like this weekend has sort of brought me out of that cave and it's been really exhilarating being around people like yourselves, um, who I think are so committed in, in their own way to sort of maintaining our social compact, which is in some ways what journalism is, why it's so essential to, uh, a democracy. Um, so anyway, I'm honored to be here. Um, what I want to talk about today is the, is the bigness of the small story. And I think too often our inclination is to, in trying to tell a story, is to be exhaustive, to just try to interview everybody. Can we turn the sound down a little bit? It feels like there's some feedback there. Thanks. Um, that, that we, our, our, our inclination often is to be too exhaustive, to try to interview everybody we can. Um, uh, and um, and to be as thorough as we can, which we should be. Um, but I think often it feels more like a flyover when we do that. And I feel very strongly that the closer, the more intimate, uh, the more immersed you can get in the lives of the people whose stories you're telling, the more powerful those narratives will be. Um, and of course, the trick is in telling these small stories, which I'll talk about some this morning, is how to indicate to your listeners what to make, what to take away from this small story. But the smaller the story, not only the more potent, but the more engaging. So I think of books like, nonfiction books like Hiroshima by John Hersey, um, which uh, is, follows five individuals in the day after the hydrogen bomb is, is dropped. Um, and I would argue it's one of the most powerful things written about nuclear warfare. Or you take Catherine Boo's um, uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers about a, a, a slum outside Mumbai. Um, again, this really small, intimate look at this one community um, and yet an incredibly powerful narrative ultimately about globalization. Um, or I think of you know, Adrian Nicola Blanc's Random Family or Darcy Frey's The Last Shot or Matthew Desmond's Evicted. Um, all these really kind of small, immersive narratives that speak to something much larger about the profound poverty in our cities. Um, I would argue again that the smaller the story, the more intimate, the more personal, and by personal I don't mean about us, but about the people whose stories we're telling, the more detailed, the more it will stay with you, the more it will get in your bones. Um, let me first just make a quick case for storytelling, which I probably don't need to do with this audience. Um, but stories are so essential to us. They're how we make sense of the world and how we make sense of our own lives as well as those around us. If you think about it, stories inform policy. They inform the way we allocate resources. They inform our laws. They inform the way we think about ourselves and others. And stories, when done well, they do two things. You know, they introduce us to people we otherwise wouldn't meet and bring us places we otherwise wouldn't go. But the other thing that stories do is they give credence to our own personal and collective histories. Uh, they, they make us feel less alone. And I'm sure we've all been there when we've watched a film or read a book and, or listened to a radio program and thought, that's my story there. Um, as stories are what connect us. Um, and the bottom line is that people don't like to be pushed or pulled. They don't like to be yelled at uh, or dismissed or pandered to. 
And therein lies the power of story, is it lets us find our own way. And I think stories are really essential in these times, because I think that there's far too much shouting going on, you know, too much ranting, too much stay at home, here's what I think diatribes from people who have little curiosity uh, for the lives of those at all different from their own. Uh, and I think you probably know of whom I speak. Uh, but, um, and again, that's the beauty of story, is it lets us find our own way in this very quiet manner. The other thing I should say is that the centripetal force of storytelling, and ultimately the centripetal force of community, is the notion of empathy. You know, the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, to look at the world through somebody else's eyes. Um, and that is ultimately what good storytelling should do, is it should put us in the shoes of others, allow us to look at the world through their eyes. And I want to be very clear when I talk about empathy, I'm not talking about feeling sorry for someone, not, necessarily, not even necessarily liking someone, but really trying to understand what pushes and pulls at them, what motivates them, what leads them to make the choices that they do, which sometimes can seem on the surface incredibly misguided, um, but to try to understand what it means to be in the circumstance of someone, someone else. So what I want to do this morning, I want to kind of break this talk down to three elements. One, I want to talk a, a little bit about finding story. I want to talk about reporting, because I think reporting for these kind of intimate stories is something very different from the ordinary, ordinary, ordinary journalistic reporting. And I want to talk about putting pieces together, about structure. Um, let me begin by talking about finding story. I, I think that this is kind of really underestimated in our craft, um, the kind of energy and the risk that's involved in finding story. And by risk, I'm not talking about personal safety, but I'm talking about the fact that inevitably, if you're out there looking for story, you're going to end up down dead ends. You're going to find a week or two goes by that's been, in some ways, in your mind, completely wasted. Um, but finding story takes some real effort. It takes a willingness to run up against brick walls and to pull back and make a right turn. Um, and, um, and I think there are essentially two ways that we find stories. Um, one is that we stumble on them, um, though I think maybe stumble is probably not quite the right word, because I think in order to find stories that we've got to be fully engaged with the world. We've got to be out there. And I know for myself, that that's really hard. I think left to my own devices, I'd probably stay holed up in my office, in my house, which sometimes I do more often than I'd like. Um, and finding story requires us to get out into the world and talk to people and just to be in places, um, to eavesdrop. I think we're probably all rather adept at that. And I can remember a number of years ago uh, being at a reception. I can't even remember what it was for. And I was there and it was a, um, I was overhearing a conversation that was taking place and there was this, African-American man, middle-aged, um, somewhat rotund, who was regaling these women with a story about these five boys that he had mentored at DuSable High School, a high school just south of here, and uh, at the time served the Robert Taylor Homes, which was the poorest neighborhood in the country. And he was talking about these five boys who were the best and the brightest. They were kids uh, unlike any other boys that he had ever mentored. Um, they all were members of the debate team. They all uh, were involved in, uh, four of them were involved in, were elected to office in the school. Um, and he was just clearly so proud of them. Um, and so after he, this conversation broke apart, I went up to this gentleman, introduced myself. His name was Otis Richardson. Um, 
And, um, and I asked Otis about these boys, and I asked him what had happened to them. And he told me that he only had kept track of two of them who had gone to historically black colleges. The other two of them had been Illinois scholars and had gone down to U of I, and one of them he had lost touch with. And, and I asked Otis at that point whether it might make sense to him and whether it would interest him if he and I would try, would try to track down what happened to these other boys. Um, and what I found, um, in the end was that the two boys who went to U of I, both of them had uh, dropped out of school um, for really two reasons. One is there was the pressure, it was the first time they were among white people, as, and the first time they were among people of privilege, and I think they were sort of hit quite hard by sort of their place in the world um, and felt incredibly unprepared or underprepared for college. And the other thing at work was that for each of them, there were things going on at home, back in their neighborhood at the Robert Taylor homes with their families that led to an enormous amount of stress. And one of them, in fact, dropped out for a while to uh, spend time with his mother who was having some troubles. Um, and both of those boys ended up dropping out of U of I. And the fifth boy who uh, he had lost touch with, it turns out, committed suicide, threw himself on the tracks of a, in front of an L train. And apparently, as far as we could piece together, he had had a son and just was despairing at the, at the thought that he would, couldn't be a good father to his son. Um, and so this story, which was this very small, intimate story, became something much larger. It became really about the kind of fragile lives of kids growing up in a community like this and how these kids who were really celebrated both at DuSable and in their neighborhood. They were high school graduates. Um, and yet to recognize that, that that in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean success for kids coming from the circumstances that these boys came from. And part of why I mentioned this particular story is because this was a story that I stumbled on. I knew it just inherently, viscerally interested me. There was this fundamental question, which is what happened to these boys? And in the process of reporting and ultimately putting the piece to together, do I then begin to sort of recognize and think about sort of what this says in a, in a larger sense, what this small story says that makes it much bigger the other way that we find stories um, is, of course, we've got a subject that's eating at us, um, and, uh, and so we need to find a way to find our way into it to find a small story. I think about issues like immigration or the housing crisis uh, in 2008 or the violence here in Chicago, um, and to take those subjects and then think about how are we going to find our way into something that feels much more intimate, much more personal. Um, and so the violence in Chicago is a, is a perfect example. Um, uh, a number of years ago, I got a call from uh, Julie Snyder at This American Life, who um, uh, I feel blessed to have fallen into her lap as a, uh, have her as an editor. And Julie was, like everybody else, reading about the increase in numbers of violence here in Chicago and was thinking that This American Life ought to spend an hour trying to sort of make sense of it. And so we talked about possible ways to doing that. And one of the first ideas we had was that 
idea to spend Memorial Day weekend and to do a collection of stories from that one weekend. And one of the things we quickly realized, and this is an important thing to sort of try to take measure of early on is the practicality of your reporting, uh, was to recognize that it, to write about this weekend um, in such close, close, such close proximity would be really difficult, if not impossible, because it would be very hard to get people to talk about these moments that, in which there was some criminal culpability um, and to get them to talk about shootings that had just taken place. And so we kind of began to bat around ideas and during the course of our conversation, there was a piece that aired here on WBEZ by Linda Lutton, the education reporter, and it was a short piece, but incredibly poignant. Um, I mean, I remember I got choked up by the end of it and it was a kind of very simple conceit. Linda's piece was about the death, the shooting death of a 16-year-old girl, Shikaki Asfi, who had been killed on the south side of Chicago, standing on a porch of an abandoned property. And it was at the funeral, uh, Linda ends up at the funeral of Shikaki, and she's with the principal of the high school where Shikaki attended, Harper High on the south side. And, um, uh, and so this piece ended up really being about Miss Sanders and about the weight that she felt after this what turned out to be, have been a horrific year for this school. They had lost, had eight current and former students who had been killed, another 23 who had been shot and wounded. Um, and in fact, Miss Sanders, one of the things I remember most about that piece is Miss Sanders kept a, a loose leaf uh, a notebook um, where she documented all the students who had been shot during the course of that year. And I listened to that piece and I sent it on to, to Julie and I said, you know, maybe this is where we ought to land come August, come fall semester, um, with the very simple question as how or even does a school write itself after this incredibly tragic year. And so this is a, for me, it was kind of a perfect example of having this larger notion at hand and yet looking for something that felt much more intimate, much more personal. And for a story to work, what you're looking for is you obviously need some tension. You need a, a kind of fundamental question you're asking as we had in Harper High. You need a, a central protagonist, a group of protagonists um, uh, who we come to know as intimately as, as possible. Um, protagonists who have choices to make and preferably individuals who are on some level self-aware. Um, I will tell you that it's very difficult. This is one of the reasons why it's really tough writing and reporting about children um, is because they're not terribly self-aware. Um, and the best subjects are those who are able to sort of reflect some on their own lives and their own actions. Um, ultimately, though, I got to tell you that the question I ask myself when I venture forth on a story is a kind of simple one. Is this somebody I want to spend time with? Um, because the truth of the matter is if I don't want to spend time with them, I guarantee you that my listeners or my readers are not going to want to spend time with them either. And I've made this mistake on a number of occasions where I've, despite that kind of visceral sense that this is somebody who's going to make things really difficult for me, maybe because they're incredibly unlikable, maybe because they're just kind of boring, um, uh, maybe because they're not terribly reflective, um, that I better darn well want to hang out with them. And that feels to me absolutely essential. So let me talk about the reporting, which I feel is the toughest part of this um, and um, the the part of it that, as you know, can be on the one hand incredibly tedious, but also incredibly 
exhilarating. Um, and the hardest part for me, and I've been at this for a long time, longer than I'd like to admit, is that sort of first proverbial knock on the door, is getting, asking somebody to invite me into their lives. I mean, I'm, for the most part, dealing with people, individuals who are private individuals, have no obligation to share their stories with me, no obligation to publicly share their stories in the way that I'm asking them to. Um, and so I'm always afraid that people are going to shut that door in my face. And, um, and one of the things that I look for, one of the things, and which is just intuitive to my personality, but I suspect it's probably a part of most of you, is that I just instinctually, when I meet people, I look for things that connect us. You know, friends that we hold in common, you know, maybe we both love basketball, whatever it is, you look for things that you, that connect us. And so I do the same when I'm out reporting. And I always remember a, year, a number of years ago, I uh, came upon a story about a corrupt sheriff in a small town in central Illinois. Um, and what interested me about the story is he had been uh, exposed by a reporter there who was in his, at the time he must have been in his late 40s, maybe even 50s. He was kind of a Mr. Rogers type. You know, he wore these cardigans, very straight-backed. And, and he worked for a county newspaper. And he spent all his time reporting on the county board meetings. And he stumbled upon um, uh, this corruption in the sheriff's department. And he was ended up becoming this kind of unlikely hero in this small town in Illinois. And his name was Dave Silverberg. And so I wanted to tell the story uh, through Dave's eyes, I had the story of a kind of unlikely hero. And I also think that local reporting is some of the hardest reporting there is. It's kind of like theater. You know, you get up there, you publish your stories, and the next day people are coming up to you on the street and telling you they liked it or what they didn't like about it. I think in some ways it's much harder than writing for a national publication. So I called Dave, and I tell him what I want to do, and he says, you know, it sounds like a, you know, it's a great story about the sheriff. He says, but I don't want to be any part of it. He's just an incredibly modest guy, and I just don't want to be any part of it. You know, I'll point you in the right direction. And so I say to him, you know, Dave, you know, listen, we're both reporters, and he stops and he says, come on now, you're writing for the New Yorker, and I'm writing for this, you know, county newspaper. And then I think, oh, Silverberg, oh, he must be Jewish in this town. So I say, you know, Dave, I'm, uh, you know, I've somehow I managed to bring up the fact that I'm Jewish. It turns out he's Catholic. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm trying to look for all these connections. And one of the things that I'm avoiding mentioning to him is about my first two books, which are about race and poverty, because he comes from this town that's all white. And I'm thinking, that's kind of not, not going to be my way into uh, Dave Silverberg. And in the end, I kind of ran out of things to talk about. And so I mentioned my first two books. And as it turns out, Every summer, Dave and his wife would take in a kid from Cabrini Green, a housing project, um, every summer. And ultimately, it's what connected us. It's what sort of began the conversation. It wasn't like he suddenly said, you know, come on in. But it at least opened that door. Um, and I think it's really important. Um, uh, and also to recognize that, our, that we not go in there kind of all guns a-blazing, you know, with all our questions at hand but that we try to build those connections. Um, and in fact, if I'm out with people, I don't know if I'm out doing a radio piece, I don't have my recorder on all the time. I will take people out to lunch just to, to talk. Um, I'll turn it off sometimes to talk about family. Um, I think it's really essential. The other thing that's really important is that you be absolutely straight with people about what your intentions are, with the knowledge that sometimes stories change over the course of time, and also to be absolutely straight with people about how you work, about how you operate. I mean, I tell people that 
I'm going to be back numerous times. Um, and sometimes that doesn't even, sometimes you can say that and it doesn't sink in. Years ago, I did a story for the New York Times Magazine about a, a boy who at 14 had come here from China on his own, uh, was smuggled in by the snakeheads. And so he had to work off a $65,000 debt working in the restaurants. And I met up with Deng when he was 21. And Deng was this really remarkably incisive, um, smart, reflective young man. And so when we met that first time, I explained to him how I worked and that I'd be back numerous times. And I think on the second or third visit he was in New York, he got really upset with me. And he said, I thought you were doing a magazine piece and it feels like you're doing a book. What's this about? Why do you keep asking me these questions over and over again? And I had to sort of slow down and explain to him again how I work. Um, the other thing, you want to be clear, you know, people often say to you, you know, I'll talk to you off the record, but off the record means so many different things to so many different people. Um, uh, um, and I think it's also essential that you, um, uh, for some, in some cases, when you're dealing with people who are in, in somewhat vulnerable positions, that you, you know, when I, when we went to Harper High, for example, you know, the arrangement we kind of had with the school was that we would record as much as we could, but if there was a moment that we caught on tape that in any way the people felt might compromise the safety or the, or the integrity of the person who we were spending time with to let us know, um, that was an understanding. And I think that's really essential. You know, you're there at their invitation. You've got this kind of access into their lives. Um, um, and I will tell you when I'm, this is less important when I'm doing radio, but if I'm out reporting a piece, I will always have my notebook out, even if I'm just at lunch talking about family, because I never want people to forget why I'm there. I never want people to feel that I've somehow betrayed their trust. Um, you know, there are two kind, essentially two kinds of reporting, I think, for these really intimate narratives. One is this kind of immersion reporting, um, where you're in the moment, uh, this kind of proverbial fly on the wall, though I don't necessarily like that phrase, and I'll explain why in a minute, but where you're in the moment. And of course, part of what that requires is to spend time with people to get them to trust you. Um, and often what I will do, I listen, the bottom line is we, we're, we're all outsiders wherever we go, by race, class, gender, age, you name it. Um, and so one of the things that I do, I don't just wander into a neighborhood. I look for institutions and people who still have some semblance of respect and dignity. And so uh, I shouldn't say still, but who have some semblance of respect and dignity in that community. And so people who kind of will be my introduction. And so at Harper, when my colleagues, Ben Calhoun, Linda Lutton, and myself showed up on that first day, we didn't know what we were going to find. We didn't know where we were going to land. And on that first day, I meet these two social workers um, uh, uh, and, uh, and who I just am enamored with. I mean, I just thought, these are people I want to hang out with. Um, yeah, for those of you who heard the piece, you know that one of them, Crystal, were just her, her kind of signature line was, I appreciate you in advance. Um, and I just loved it. She wanted the kids in the hall. She'd just hug them. And, and I just thought, I, I want to be a part of that. I want to get those hugs in the morning as well. So I ended up embedding with them. And so I spent these five months, you know, really most of my time in this windowless office in the center of the building where Anita and Crystal worked and just hung out there. And Anita and Crystal were kind of my entree into the school. It's what got me into the lives of some of the children uh, that they worked with. So I want to play a quick piece of tape here. This is, a, um, this is a moment when I'm sitting in the office and 
Devante, who was a, a junior at that time, um, Devante had a year earlier accidentally shot and killed his 14-year-old brother. And um, one of the things that interests me about Devante's story is that right after the funeral, in fact, the day after the funeral, he shows up at school. Um, it was clearly a place that he wanted to be, that he felt safe, um, he felt comfortably felt nurtured. Um, and so there's this moment here where I'm in the office and Devante is talking about um, uh, his, the, his um, need to have his brother's bed to fall asleep in. So let me. Um, what? Tell my mom to throw my little brother's bed away and I don't want her to throw it away and stuff. He's worried his mom might throw away his little brother's bed. So we talked about, can I say this? It helps him to sleep at night if he sleeps in his brother's bed. But his mother was contemplating throwing the bed away. And so I had told him that if I needed to, I would call her and let her know why it's important for him to be able to, you know, keep the bed. Right? Mm-hmm. So I play this piece of tape for a number of reasons. I think the first is that it's you know detail is so essential to good storytelling. Um, and you know the uh, there's the old adage you know show don't tell. And obviously if I was just telling Devante's story, I would tell you that he was um, uh, incredibly traumatized by his brother's death, that he had trouble sleeping. But here you learn this thing so specific to Devante, right? That he needs his brother's mattress, wants his brother's mattress in order to fall asleep. The other thing about this piece of tape is it kind of foreshadows this conflict that we learn about later between Devante and his mom. You know, his mom is thinking about throwing away the bed and you, you get this sense, this, this sliver of a sense that things are not necessarily right between Devante and his mom. That he can tell the social workers this, but he can't tell his mom that he needs the bed. And the third thing is, is that there's a moment in that piece of tape where you hear Crystal turn to me and say, do you get what he's saying, right? You, you, you heard that, right? She's talking to me, and at one point she even turns to Devante and say, basically says, Devante, is it okay if Alex is recording? You know, that's what she's kind of saying to him. And I feel that it's important to recognize, you know, we talk about being a fly on the wall, but we're never really a fly on the wall, right? We're always, we're always there. People always remember that we're there. It's kind of a myth that people forget that we're present. Um, and in fact, it's important that they remember that we're there. And, um, and the other part of it is, is that, you know, that it's okay to have yourself in a piece, but what's important to remember and this is the hard truth, is that listeners don't care about us. They don't care about who we are. They don't care about whether we're surprised, whether we laugh or cry in a moment. The trick is, in terms of telling stories, to get others to laugh and cry and be surprised, as you were. Um, but it's okay to have yourself in the piece for mechanical reasons. In a, in a case in which you can't create a moment or a scene without acknowledging your presence. And that's kind of what's taking place here, is it's clear that I'm present there with them, as Crystal turns to me. 
So there's this one way of immersion where you immerse yourself in the lives of people and you're there in the moment. And, um, and you know, I feel for me, it's, there's nothing more exhilarating about that. But I will also tell you there's a lot of really tedious, boring downtime where you get stuff that's uh, you can't use or, uh, or, or stuff that happens that is incredibly uh, um, dramatic and yet maybe doesn't relate directly to the protagonists or in your piece, which is always important to remember that once you've got those boundaries, you've got your protagonist your or a single character that everything needs to relate back to him or her. Um, but the other kind of reporting is, is what I call a kind of stylistic interviewing, which is interviewing with an eye towards thinking and reporting cinematically is to get people to tell stories um, in a way that you can close your eyes and imagine that you're there in that moment with them. And as we all know, for the most part, most of us people are lousy storytellers. You know, you go out in the world and you talk to people and they begin stories in the middle, they begin stories in the end, they gloss over these moments that you think, oh my God, we, what, what just happened here? Um, and so what's really important is that you get people to slow down, you go back and repeatedly talk to people about a single moment because inevitably people remember details. That if you can, you talk to others who may remember that moment with them and may remember who is there with them and may remember details that you can go back and revisit with the person you're interviewing. Um, sometimes if you can, you try to, you take the person to the place that they're talking about. Again, that boy Deng who, the, boy from China, when we were talking about his coming to Chinatown, he was, again, he was 14 years old. He was on his own. He was completely disoriented. His mother had sent him off to America without really any explanation. And so I wanted to understand, especially those first few nights in Chinatown. And so Deng and I went to Chinatown, and he walked me around um, Chinatown and showed me all the spots, including the spot in Seward Park where he slept those first three nights, um, and it was really helpful. Um, especially when we got to Seward Park and he showed me the, he slept on the bench, it helped me imagine what it must have been like to be this 14-year-old boy, and I suddenly had questions that I hadn't had before, like simple ones, but like, okay, so you had these two suitcases with you, how did you sleep, you know, and ensure that the, nobody came by and stole your suitcases, you know, and it turns out that he put one of them under his head and had the other one with, with his arm through it. So. It's also helpful to go visit. So I want to play a piece of tape here from a story I, I did a number of years ago about a, um, a woman who grew up in Morocco. And uh, her parents, uh, her mother died, her father left her, and she was raised by her grandmother. And her grandmother, when Fanny is 12 years old, dies. And Fanny's got nowhere to turn, and so she ends up going and knocking on the door of a family that knew her parents. And they take her in, but they end up taking her in and treating her like a slave. And so I'm going to play this short excerpt from this piece. Once a week or every other week on a Sunday, we would go to the beach. They would go with the two little boys, and then they had this black little kid carrying the parasol. And for them, I was their signe exterior de richesse, their symbol status. By showing me, they could tell that they had a certain wealth. Mm -hmm. 
At this point, I had been with the family for four or five months. I was just taking the time to figure out une échappatoire, a way out. It took a lot of time, and I was being very careful. As I was doing my chores, as I was going outside to do the groceries, I was also observing, and I got some money because I was able to pocket some money from going to the grocery store. I just pretended that instead of buying that spice that day, I didn't buy it, and I pocketed the money. You could buy envelopes individually, and I bought one, and I bought a stamp. And I grabbed a piece of paper from a notebook, and I, I wrote the letter to the French embassy. It's not that extraordinary, even though I was 11. I was doing a lot of things like this for my grandmother. Every time that she needed a letter, I wrote it for her because she didn't know how to write. I wrote that my grandmother died, and I've been stuck in Morocco. I'm with the Ghazali family, and I would like to go back to France to my father. I did that when I was on an errand for the family. It was very calculated. No one was suspicious that I was gone. I, I went on a regular basis to the store. So I didn't even know that it was going to arrive there, but I just wrote Ambassade de France, Casablanca, Maroc, and that's it. That's kind of an amazing story. The people from the consulate do show up and they take her, they send her back to France actually to live with relatives where things only get worse for her. Um, and, um, and she has to escape from this uh, second, yet second family in, in France. Um, but one of the things about this, so Fanny um, came into the studio, this is a piece I did with Amy Drozdowska and to talk with us. And she cried, literally cried through the whole interview. The tape was completely unusable. And clearly it was incredibly emotional for her, maybe even traumatic. And so, you know, at some point I stopped recording and I just sat down with Fanny and I just said, you know, are you sure you want to tell this story? Are you ready to tell this story? And she was very insistent that she wanted to do it. So we brought her back again a second time when she was more composed. Um, and we had the advantage to now of already hearing, hearing the story once. So to be able to sort of think about all the details that were gonna be really important to acquire. But everybody, I mean, I think it's important to remember that everybody has their own reason for telling their story. So for Fanny, the reason why it was so important for her, she had never told her children. She has a son and a daughter. She teaches high school now in Chicago. She had never told her children um, about her experience growing up um, and this time when she was on her own and kind of enslaved by these two families. And she wanted to tell her children. And this was her way of telling them. Um, you know, often when I go out into the world and I'm asking people to tell me their story, one of the first questions I get is, I'm, am I going to get paid for it? Which I think is a really legitimate question, because what people are really asking is, what's in it for me? And I think that's a question you need to sort of ask yourself when you go out and talk to people, what's in it for somebody to tell their story in this incredibly public way? And I think people often have different reasons. You know, one, sometimes it's to right or wrong. Sometimes it's because uh, they, like you, recognize that if you could tell the story of their lives and their community, that it will somehow reflect on a much larger issue. Uh, this was certainly the case of the mother in my first book, There Are No Children Here. Um, and sometimes it's simply because it's cathartic, because nobody has come and asked them about their own lives, about their own 
journeys. Uh, just uh, about a year ago for a story I thought I was going to do, I was trying to find a veteran to talk to. And I was talking to this veteran on the phone, and he served two tours of duty in Iraq. And, um, and what I was interested in is about his time coming home. And he was incredibly traumatized by the events in Iraq. He lost a, a best friend there. Um, he comes home, he gets divorced, he starts drinking, he loses contact with his high school friends. And so one of the things I asked him was, you know, are there others in your life that um, who you've talked to about your time in Iraq who I might be able to talk to because it's really important when you're spending time with people is to talk to others around them as well. And uh, he told me, no, he said, I've never talked to anybody about this before. And I, I of course, this is the first time I talked to the guy. I said, I had to ask, I said, so why are you telling me? And he said, because nobody's ever asked. And so, and I think that's often the case is nobody's ever asked. And there is something really affirming about sharing your story. Uh, Studs used to, Studs Terkel used to always like to tell the story back in the 60s when he was working on Division Street. He was interviewing a woman in the projects and, uh, uh, and he's there for an hour with her and after he's done she wants to listen to the interview and so he's, you know, he's got this big reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and he rewinds the tape and plays her and she sits there listening to this interview intently and afterwards she turns to Studs and goes, I never knew I, I never knew I thought all that. And so that's the kind of power of sometimes of telling your story. Um, uh, so uh, um, in telling your story, one of the things about reporting, as you well know, when you go out, especially in these kind of very intimate personal stories, it can be rather messy. It can be rather disorienting. And you always have to be asking yourself is whose story is this, and sometimes you've got to be ready to pivot um, in a moment because the reporting isn't quite as you anticipated. Uh, uh, a number of years ago, I had learned um, that there are a number of states in this country, somewhat astonishingly, uh, that will house juvenile offenders in adult prisons. Um, and I, I couldn't wrap my head around that. Uh, and so I was looking for somebody, a kid, who I could profile, who I could do a piece of radio piece about. Um, and I called all these lawyers around the country, and I found a situation, a young girl, Jessica Robinson in Florida, who at the age of 14 with uh, two friends of hers had gone and robbed her grandparents at knife point. And they were sent, all three sentenced to rather long uh, prison sentences. Um, in fact, the judge in the, in the sentencing referred to Jessica, uh, compared her to an animal. Um, and so Jessica, at the age of 14, is sent to an adult prison. So I get in contact with Jessica through her lawyers and arrange a visit down to visit her in this prison in Miami. So I go down to visit her, and I just want to play this short segment of her. I have an hour and a half with her. She's 16 at this time. She's really young, kind of immature. She's... The, during the whole interview, she's picking lint off my microphone. You know, she's playing with her hair. She's um, uh, clearly anxious. Um, and so the question I ask her right away is, uh, were you scared when you came to Jefferson, this, this prison? Scared when I went to Jefferson? No. What are the things you miss the most? Having fun. Like what? Going out with 
Barber mainly because we used to, we used to go to the beach and stuff. Going shopping. Oh, I miss shopping. Going to the movies. Going to the pet shops. Seeing the little puppies in the windows. If you could get out tomorrow, what would you? What would be the first thing you'd do? Oh, I'd probably go to Taco Bell and eat. <laughs> go to Taco Bell. Yep, I love Taco Bell. So, as you can hear, I thought, how am I ever going to manage to pull off a piece around this girl who's, you know, not terribly reflective, not terribly thoughtful? I mean, you can hear how young she is, um, but there's no way that I could have her as a kind of central character. And I remember calling Julie, I don't know if she's here in the room, but, uh, but uh, um, telling her that this, this I mean, this is half my life is just this angst in the middle of a piece thinking it's not going to work. And this is yet another example of where I picked up the phone. I said, Julie, there's no way we're going to be able to pull this off. And, you know, that, this is just, uh, I feel really bad. You know, we, I took this trip at your expense all the way down to Miami and making all these apologies. Now, fortunately, I had set up two other interviews with two women who had kind of mentored uh, uh, Jessica in prison, kind of taking her under her wings. And so we agreed that I should just go through and do those interviews. And so... The first woman I meet is a woman, Suzanne Manning, who's in her 40s. She's serving a long prison sentence for fraud. And Suzanne was the first person who kind of took Jessica under her wings. And I meet with Suzanne, and I'm going to play you this piece of tape here from that first, from that visit with her. The first time I ever saw Jessica was actually sitting in the chow hall at Jefferson Correctional Institution. Um, there had been a lot of rumors going around about this little girl that was at Jefferson, and Jefferson's considered kind of a tough prison. There are three gun towers. It's pretty intimidating. It's very strict. You walk in a little yellow line on the side of the, the walkways. So in the chow hall, I had heard all the rumors. Well, when I saw her walk by, I was in shock because when you looked at Jessica, and this was years ago now, a couple years ago, Jessica looked like a child. Her cheeks were rosy red, she still looked like she had baby fat on her, and she looked totally lost. Um, not too long after I first saw her, she moved into my dorm in B-Dorm, and my heart just broke when I saw Jessica and I got to talk to her because she was a child, she was a baby, and she was thrown into this hellhole and didn't have a clue. And Suzanne went on to tell me these just amazing stories about this one time when they, uh, she and a couple of other inmates bought a radio for Jessica from the commissary and how much of a difference it made in Jessica's life that reminded them that she was just a kid. Another time that Jessica got into a fight and Suzanne had to go intervene while all these other inmates were kind of egging Jessica on. And so what I did was a very kind of quick pivot to recognize that this story really, in, well, was about this young girl in prison, it really was about these women, because there was another woman I interviewed as well, who ended up taking this girl under her wing. And so one of the things I think you have to be ready for when you're out reporting, especially in these very intimate places, is being willing and ready to pivot um, if need be, um, if things aren't happening quite as you expected, which the truth of the matter is almost always the case. So let me just talk quickly about structuring story, um, and then I want to show a sh sh short video and then and open up to questions. Um, you know, the bottom line is, and I, you probably have heard this from other speakers, but you know, chronology is your and your listeners or readers' best friend. 
And if you have it, use it. And if you don't have it, find it and impose it. And by that, I mean the Harper High series is a perfect example of that. We go into this school, there's no natural uh, chronology. And so we impose a chronology, which is we decide to spend a semester in the school. And that becomes the chronology of that piece. Um, uh, so, you know, chronology is sort of the natural way we tell stories. Um, when I sit down at a screen to write and I'm coming up blank, and everything feels like a mess, if I just sort of begin at the beginning, um, at least I can begin to get things down on paper. Um, it doesn't mean that necessarily you have to start at the, at the absolute beginning. You know, you often, you can begin somewhere in the middle of a story, at the essence of a story, and then take a pause, work your way back, and then work your way back up through that moment and onwards. Um, but chronology is, is so essential, um, I think, to good, Storytelling. It doesn't mean you can't play with chronology, but conquer that, that conquer chronological storytelling before you sort of take on other ways to tell stories. Um, and you know, context is also really important. You know, we're telling these very small stories, and so to make it clear to readers or listeners that, that what they're listening is not some anomaly, that there is something larger going on here. Um, and if you're you're, if you've got the trust of your reader, of your listener, um, then you'll be able to take this occasional tributary um, and talk about context, which may include, um, as Nicole was talking about in the session before, about history, um, but also sort of helping us understand whether what we're seeing, what we're listening, what we're witnessing is something highly unusual. And I remember in the Harper High series, you know, we here we go spend this five months at this high school, and one of the concerns we had is that listeners would think we picked this really bad high school because, you know, things were so terrible, and what we have here is this really unusual situation. You know, it's also in Chicago, and uh, and in fact, after the first hour aired, we actually got an email from a listener saying, you know, you guys picked the worst high school in the country. You know, what do you? expect, and so we kind of wrestled with how to give the piece some context, um, and we did something in the end, I think, rather simple, which I'm just gonna play a part of, because I think it'll be pretty self-evident, um, but at the end of the two hours, um, uh, you know, what we decided to do was we decided, um, uh, we, well, we decided to start calling principles around the country, and so here's what we came up with. At the end of the at the end of the show. Hi, I'm Liz Dozier, the principal of Finger High School on the far south side of Chicago. We've lost um, nine students to violence in the last little over three years. I'm Shante Higginbottom, and I'm the new principal here at King College Prep High School here in Chicago. And this year, I've had two students who were shot during our Christmas break. And then we had the last case with Hydea Pendleton, and she died. My name is John Lynch. I'm the principal of Castlemont High School in Oakland, California. So I've been at Castlemont High School for um, the past two and a half years, and in the time that I've been here, six students have been shot, and two of those students who were shot were actually killed. I am Bertie Simmons, and I am the principal of Fur High School, and it's located in the far east side of Houston, Texas. In the last two years, I could name five students that were shot and killed. 
you get the idea. I mean, a rather simple device, um, but what it does at the end of those two hours, it makes you sit up and realize you've been listening to this incredibly intimate, personal, small story, and yet it's much bigger than you imagined. So I just want to end with just a few words of quick caution. So one, I can't underscore this enough, but when you're telling a story that is naturally dramatic, that's filled with emotion, the, the best way to tell that story is as in an understated a manner as you can. Um, I think back, as a writer, I think back of John Hersey's Hiroshima, which is about as understated a book as you can imagine, uh, and, and yet is incredibly potent. And people often ask, you know, think they're gonna find their voice in the way they write or tell a story, but the truth of the matter is you're gonna find your voice in the substance of what you're saying in your reporting. And so please don't forget that. Um, also, recognize that listening, uh, it, it takes work. Um, it's not a passive exercise. Listening is this really active engagement with people where you're not only conversing with them, you're debating with them, you're arguing, you're pushing, you're poking, you're prodding, you're challenging, you're asking questions of them and of yourself, you're laughing with them, you're crying with them. But it's this really full-throated engagement that you've got to have with your subjects. And finally, I want to warn us against what uh, the novelist uh, Chimamanda Adichie calls the danger of the single story, of thinking you already know when you fact you know very little. You know, be careful about pigeonholing people, of letting them be a type, of, of somehow being representative of a group. Um, everyone is filled with their own personal complexities, the own, their own particular experiences. Um, so I want to show here actually a film clip. Um, this is from a film I did with my colleague Steve James uh, called The Interrupters. And we spent uh, 14 months following um, three individuals who uh, work for an organization here called Ceasefire, now called Cure Violence. And they, these three individuals are formerly of the street. They uh, have, many of them have been members of gangs, have served prison time. And their job is to go out into their neighborhoods and interrupt disputes before they turn violent. And uh, so this moment I'm about to show you is a moment when Kobe, one of the three individuals we're following, gets a phone call from a a guy he had met years ago in the county jail named Flamo. And if anybody's seen The Wire, Flamo reminds me of Omar in The Wire. He was a renegade. Um, he was a guy you really had to be careful around. And it turns out that somebody had called the police on Flamo and told the police that Flamo had guns in his house. And the police came and raided Flamo's house. And Flamo wasn't home, but the police ended up uh, handcuffing his mother and arresting his brother. And Flamo was enraged, and he wanted vengeance. He thought he knew who had called the police. And so he calls Kobe, and Kobe calls us, so we join him over there. Um, and so this is the moment when Kobe arrives at Flamo's, um, uh, and who's, who's already been downing, uh, uh, already been drinking. He left me a voicemail. I got a call from a guy I met in jail. He said this guy sent a police in the house. Somebody here is doing illegal things. Say the police kicked his door in, locked up his brother. They threw handcuffs on his mother. And he's talking about he knew who had sent the police in this house. He is looking for him. I ain't no bitch ass yesterday, nigga. 
What's up, what's up, what's up? My man Flamo make you laugh, but if you fuck with him, you better bring it on. These motherfuckers came here, man, had my motherfucker mama handcuffed, my little brother handcuffed and shit, man. Took my little brother, one got shot. The fucking wheelchair, man. Took him to jail. But still, though, man, you got to try to leave that shit alone, though, man. Leave shit alone till I get these motherfuckers. You already know how I get in. I mean, but that shit ain't gonna make no... Boy, it's gonna make it better for me. I'm sorry to hear about your brother, but still, though, they don't make shit no better. They ain't gonna make shit no better, though. Fuck making it better. I'm walking around my fucking pistol. Can you grab my phone, brother? I, don't, I can't, you know. Man, man you crazy, man, be out here like that. Thing. It's love and everything, but I ain't feeling that, none of this shit. And I respect y'all, you know what I'm saying, what you're doing there, then that's cool. But fuck that. I'm not with C's fighting. What was y'all letting these motherfuckers can't kick in my door? What I'm saying is we can't erase what already happened, but the whole thing is you got to look at it like, man. You can't erase what happened. You right. And you can't predict what the fuck I'm finna do. Shit. You know, we just try to work shit out. You options and solutions yeah. to the problem. Man. Fuck this shit. Fuck a problem. Fuck the solution. These motherfuckers trying to take my shit. You ain't just cross me. You cross my fucking mama. But my mama, nigga, I come to your crib and kill that motherfucker by Tour, your brother's gone. If you be gone, they ain't gonna do nothing but hurt your mama. Shit be all right. How many kids you got? I I'm claiming four. All right, but That's I'm just it. saying, so if you go to jail, who gonna take care of your kids? That's the thing. God take care of us now. He gonna take care of me. Just like when I do what I'm gonna do, he gonna take care of me too. But you was locked up before for the same shit, though. Man, I've been, I'm 32 years old. I've been locked up 15 years in my life. What that mean? What the fuck that mean? That's where I grew up at. God damn it. Ain't no shame. Ain't no secret. Shit. I'm tired of being out here any motherfucker. Where it's bored as hell out here. Soft-ass niggas out here ain't doing shit but tricking. That ain't the police, shit. What's that on the corner? I know these punk-ass police still want me. Motherfuckers got to kill me. Man, that shit crazy, man. How can you help me right now? How can you help me? I mean, the only thing, like I say, the only thing I can do is try to get to know you more, spend a little time with you, and try to work with so you. So that means you will take me out to dinner then. We can go to lunch right now, and we can sit down and we can talk about this motherfucking problem. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to hold you to that goddamn shit. Yeah, we can go out. We can what you want to do. We can go out now. Right now? Yeah. Let me go put my pistol up. <laughs> So, you know, in this moment, Kobe did something so simple, it seems almost laughable. You know, he invites Flamo out to lunch, and then he takes him to a meeting of the interrupters, and, and then a few weeks later, he takes him out to dinner. He stays with him. And so do we as storytellers, which is really essential, that Flamo not be defined by this singular moment. And I'm not going to give away the film, but suffice it to say that we were surprised, even knocked off balance by Flamo's journey in the subsequent weeks and months. And in the end, I came to realize that all Flamo needed was someone to listen to his story, someone to acknowledge his grievance, someone to believe in him. And Kobe, from his own background, knew this instinctually. And it's moments like this that remind us there's no single narrative, there's no single story. You know, over the course of the 14 months that we filmed, it became apparent that the one constant for those like Kobe and Flamo who were able to emerge from the wreckage of their lives and their neighborhoods was to have someone in their life who carried high expectations for them, someone who treated them with a sense of dignity and decency, someone who saw them for who they are, full, rich, nuanced,
complicated individuals whose lives and stories don't neatly fit into some predetermined slot. Kobe saw in Flamo something more than just an angry young man. And this is the challenge for all of us as storytellers, is to not define others by circumstance or by a moment in their lives, but rather to come to know them for who they are. Thank you. So I would welcome questions. Well, his hands went up fast. OK. Yeah. There's a, there's a mic here. OK, great. Well, first of all, thanks, Alex. That was, uh, that was a, a feast. Um, there was one thing that uh, I'd like to ask you about in a little bit more detail. And you talked about uh, you get a sense of whether you want to spend some time with somebody. Um, I'm wondering if that forecloses your spending time with unsavory people uh, who, you know, there may be a great story there. Right. Uh, and, and further to that, when you spend time with somebody, whether you suspend judgment, do you make judgments about them? Right. Can, you, can you elaborate sure. on that? Yeah. So the bottom line, when you say unsavory, I mean, there, Nicole actually addressed this a little bit. I mean, the truth of the matter is, Though I will say, again, as Nicole said, that this week kind of changes things a little bit. But I think there's very little good and evil in the world. And the truth of the matter is everybody kind of falls somewhere in between. And some people are maybe more likable than others. And spending time with people who are unlikable, you know, it can be difficult. But it's sometimes necessary. And I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but um, so I, I, I think that what's important is that, you know, you, you find people who you, when you ask about judging them, you find people who you're able to sort of challenge and question. So I, one of the tough things about this work, as you all know, is when you're especially spending time with people who are private individuals, is asking them about choices that may seem really misguided. So there's a moment, for example, in my first book, There Are No Children Here, when I realized that the mother of the two boys who I really admired, that she would disappear for nights, two or three nights a week. It turns out she was gambling, playing cards on the other end of the projects. And I would find out, because I'd get phone calls from the, her children. They were 12 and 9 years old. And you know they wouldn't have any breakfast. They wouldn't have any clean underwear or socks. And as time went on, I got angrier and angrier about it. And at some point, um, I realized I needed to sit down and confront LeJoe about it. Confront may be the wrong word. I needed to sit down and understand it. Um, and so what I did is to, I did sit down with LeJoe and ask her why she did this. It turns out that for her it was the only way that she could find some respite from all that was bearing down on her. And she knew that you know, it probably wasn't right by her children. Um, and initially she said, please don't write about it. You can't write about it. And I made the argument with her that one, I, I felt like I needed to write about it to be honest to her story, but I also felt like it made her a, a more fuller human being, a more kind of real human being. And I think readers are pretty and listeners are pretty savvy and they know when we're pulling our punches. And I said in the context of everything else going on in your life and everything else you've done, I think readers will understand. And they did, in fact. Um, uh, and so I think you need to be able to sort of push back um, and be able to challenge people about decisions they've made. And again, without judging, but in an effort to try to understand. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Wait, but did you have to resist the urge to try to like persuade her not to do that? 
This did isn't my real question, but did I have to resist the urge to to, to try to like talk her out of doing that? Like. Oh, you did mean you want to reason with her? Oh, yeah, I did reason. I did argue with her. Yeah, I mean, listen, you spend time. At this point, I'd spend two years with the family, and so yeah, I would. I got in arguments all the time with people about, especially <laughs> the kids, about stuff they were doing, and that's okay. That's you know, I mean, we're it's you build relationships with people, and you've got to understand. I mean, what's what the tricky part is, to be honest, is not to maintain that distance in the reporting, it's really, the tricky part is to maintain that distance when you sit down and put the story together. Because you, what you've got to remind yourself is that you're writing for your readers or your listeners, you're not writing for the people, for your subjects. And that's the tricky part. What I was gonna ask was, do, do you remember when you, when you switched to radio, like the lessons that you first learned about yeah. Yeah. how it's different from print, from conceiving of the story through the whole yeah. process yeah. and interviewing and everything. So actually, I actually started in radio, um, I, back in the early 1980s when I just started in journalism and I was living in Michigan and NPR was desperate for a reporter, it was during this deep auto recession, uh, during the deep industrial uh, Rust Belt crisis and they were desperate for a reporter out here. They actually taught me radio over the phone. Um, and um, I, you know, listen, the, the, I know this sounds really glib, but doing radio made me a much better listener, much more attentive listener. Um, I think there are different things when I go out and do a radio piece, I'm obviously much more attentive to the kind of tape I'm getting. I mean, it's so essential to, to radio, um, it's really difficult, if not impossible, for me to go out and do a piece where I'm doing both for radio and print. I really need to do it for one or the other. Um, but um, but the truth of the matter is, it's you're telling stories. It's not a whole lot different. I think. Listen, the the thing I love about radio is there's this immediate intimacy just in the medium itself that you just are immediately connected to people through their voices. Um, and the other thing is, is I feel like in, in radio, and this is in more recent years, this, I mean, Ira has sort of, sort of helped bring this to radio, you could be more casual in your, or seemingly more casual in your storytelling. I mean, of course, the kind of rigor that goes into putting those pieces together is, is tremendous, but seemingly more casual in your storytelling. And, and that's actually been helpful in my writing as well. So. Oh, go ahead. Hi. Uh, two questions. Uh, so the first is, in terms of the way you relate to your source who will be your protagonist, like I recently had the experience of, I did a feature on a man who's, who was sued by Facebook years ago and his entire life fell apart. And on the one hand, I clearly felt some sort of connection to him and felt like I was kind of on his side. But I'm also a tech reporter for NPR and I cover Facebook and I feel like I need to be fair. And so I think that like I, I feel a kind of emotional conflict in me as I interview sources that become like real characters in the stories that have characters. That's right. sort of the question, how do you deal with that when you have to connect but keep a distance? Right. Um, and then the second question I have is uh, covering tech in Silicon Valley. I mean, I cover the haves, not the have-nots a lot of the time. And sometimes I wonder about Oh, so many people, so many entrepreneurs have a story about killing it and being awesome and like, you know, it's not like as much heartache and life sucks and I just got out of jail. It's a lot more of this kind of like rosy world, sunshine, California stuff going on. 
And I, and I wonder if, if you have a take on, maybe all the same principles apply, it's just hard for me to see it. Right, well, let me just say, you know, there's this old adage that everybody has a story to tell, but look, some stories are a hell of a lot more interesting than others, and so I think you've got to ask yourself, I mean, what makes up a good story is this sense of conflict, of tension, the simple notion that you want to know what happens next you've got a protagonist in which who's got to make some choices along the way. And if you don't have all that, I don't think you have a good story. Um, and also the other thing about story is it needs to in some ways surprise us. I mean, as reporters, the thing I'm always asking myself, if I'm going into a story and I, and I know what I'm going to find, why bother? Right? So the beauty, and for me, the exhilaration of this kind of work is you go out into the world and you're constantly knocked off balance. Um, and that's what I love about my, my work. Um, remind me, the first part of the question was... Uh, um, just the, the first part is when you're both trying to oh, really... About, about, right. Yeah. So listen, the, for me, I, kinda, I feel like I have this kind of underlying notion or principle in my, this kind of stories I do, and that is a very simple one, that life ought to be fair. And subsequently, many of my stories, not all, are about moments when life feels incredibly unfair. And it's okay, you go into a story, part of our job as reporters is, listen, this notion of objectivity, excuse my language, is complete bullshit. I mean, we go out into the world with our own set of personal and collective experiences. We, everybody enters, comes to a story with their own preconceptions. And what we have to ask of ourselves is that one, we be, honest to what we see and hear and absolutely fair, but be willing to be knocked off balance at every corner, to have our own assumptions challenged. But there are many times when I get into a story and I feel like, you know, it's clear to me that there's something that is unfair or unjust going on and my job is not to pound the table and tell readers or listeners that what's happening here is unfair and unjust, but to tell that story in as straight and understated a manner as I can, to be as fair as I can to both sides, and hope that readers and listeners will end up where I ended up. Um, and that's, and, and there's nothing more powerful than that. Um, and that's why I can't stand listening to the pundits on cable news who are telling me how to think. All the way in the back there. So uh, you said, you know, we should be absolutely straightforward with our intentions go going in in the beginning with the people that we're interviewing. And um, I'm wondering if you have, a, if you learned that the hard way, if there's a story from your life, maybe early on in your career, where you felt like maybe you betrayed someone's trust and it's something that haunts you and you feel really bad about it. <laughs> God, I feel story, like I'm in therapy. A story. Um, there isn't, though I'm sure it's there. Um, I will tell you there have been moments, I mean, the other, the other part of this is that, you know, we have this enormous responsibility, sometimes even a burden, of telling people stories in this very public manner. We're, we're exposing them. We're revealing things about their lives that others may not know. Um, there was the, the, um, the story that there Are No Children Here was ultimately based on was a story I did for the Wall Street Journal when I was on staff there in which I spent a summer with the older of the two boys. And it was just about the violence that he had to contend with during that summer. And in the course of that story, I mentioned in passing that the father who was separated from their mother 
would occasionally sleep on the couch and stay there sporadically. And this is during the Reagan years, during the 1980s, when everything was kind of flipped on its head. And somebody in public aid read that and said, aha, we've got ourselves a welfare cheat. And they cut the family off of public aid. So I'm much more attentive now, um, and not always successfully, to try to sort of try to imagine, given my experience, what it means for somebody to reveal something to me that might put them in a somewhat compromised position. And so, for example, with the interrupters, I did something which I've never done before, which is that we actually showed the three subjects a rough cut of the film. Now, part of it was we wanted to make sure everything was accurate, but we kind of had an understanding to let us film everything we can, and if in the end there's something that you feel compromises somebody's safety or integrity, let us know. And there is a scene that we ended up taking out of the movie at the request of one of the interrupters. There was a lot of back and forth about it, but in the end it was feeling, it, he strongly felt that it endangered one of the people in that, in that moment, and so we took it out. Right here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've been very persistent. Thank you. Um, uh, you talked about pivoting, being ready to pivot at any point. I've had this come up as a reporter and also as an editor, where the person that opens up that you think is going to fit in the story doesn't fit in the story. So I'm just wondering, what are what do you do when you don't? Someone shares their story right. and you can't use it. Right. Now, this happens a lot. Where I'm out spending a lot of time with people and um, sometimes very emotional and or somebody has you know, really gone out of their way to, to spend time with me to give access to their lives. And in the end, for one reason or another, I realize that their story doesn't fit in, the, in what I'm doing. And all you can do is be absolutely honest and straight with people. You know, I mean, people are disappointed. Um, I've had people you know, quite disappointed. Um, but I think that's all you can do. Your loyalty in the end, what you've got to remember is really, in your, as a storyteller, to your readers and your listeners. Um, uh, but you've just got to be absolutely straight with people. I think the other thing I should say, which is also essential, is that I've got a kind of simple operating principle, which is that nothing I write or that airs should surprise anyone, so that everybody should be fully aware of what is gonna be out there, and I think that's really important. Now, in many places like This American Life or The New Yorker, you've got fact checkers who go and essentially do that for you because they go and call your subjects and tell them basically everything that's gonna be in the piece. Um, but short of that, I think it's really important that people be aware of, of what you're about to air and that if, if there is a moment that you can't confront somebody with face-to-face, -face, you've got no business airing it. Um, so, for example, in the Harper High series, there is a moment um, that my colleague Ben got on tape in which he's at a meeting of administrators and staff, and they're talking about Thomas, one of the boys that I spent time with and who's a central character in the piece, and Leonetta Sanders, the principal, is talking about how she believes Thomas is the leader of a gang and, and is really violent and, and, and you need to be careful around him. And it was a, when I heard it, I, it was, I felt really pained for Thomas. And I just thought, here's this 17-year-old kid who's already up against enough, and I didn't feel like I had it in me to be able to sit down with Thomas and either play this tape or tell Thomas what these administrators were saying about him. And we, it was a lot of back and forth. I'm not telling you it was an easy decision, but we ended up not using that piece of 
of tape as a result. Uh, thank you so much for this talk. I, 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 this idea of going in and immersing yourself in someone's life, it's, um, I think it's one of the best parts of this job. But one of the things I find constantly is I get overwhelmed by how much tape I have. Right. And I, hear, I, fee I see the magical moments happening, and then I almost become overwhelmed by them, and I don't know how to like, be open to the magical moments and then not just feel like, oh, I got it, I should stop. Recording, you know, I don't know. Well, I think, you know, what's absolutely essential, and I've learned this over the years, you've got to find good editors. I, editors are in, good editors are invaluable. I mean, I've had the, um, I mean, I had the privilege to work with Julie at This American Life. Um, I have an editor at the New York Times Magazine, Vera Titunic, who did the same thing for me there in print. But to have a good editor who gets as invested in your story as you are and is able to tell you, one, you've got everything you need. Stop reporting. Um, it's them or my wife who's telling me that. Um, uh, and somebody who can say, you know, look, you know, you've got a terrific moment here. We need to go back and get, you know, we have questions that come up. You've, but you've got to, the value of having a good editor to work with, I, I can't underscore that enough. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I, I was raised on Chicago South Side and um, around like really incredible, um, resilient communities of people. And I often get frustrated. I'm also obviously a radio lover and I get frustrated that public media in Chicago, I feel like doesn't always reflect those communities. And I was wondering if you ever felt, I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, when I heard Jared Harper High School series that was like the first time for me that really came through. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were about that, um, if you agree with that, um, if not, like what, what should we do about that? Right. Well, again, this goes back to what Chimamanda Adichie talks about as the danger of the single narrative, or this notion of kind of pigeonholing people. And I think it's, you know, it's for me, it's out of, out of laziness that we tend to sort of go and spend time with people and they somehow become something symbolic for something that we already think we know. Um, and you're right. I mean, the story I always think about, I don't know if you remember this for those in Chicago, but maybe almost 20 years ago, there was a young girl, Ryan Harris, who was killed on the south side of the city. Uh, she was brutally, she was sexually assaulted and uh, um, and uh, and left for, she left for dead in a vacant lot. Um, and the police arrested two boys, seven and eight years old, and they were absolutely convinced that they had the right people. And uh, nobody, because we don't really spend time in these communities, nobody was really talking to the parents in these communities. And if we had, what they would have heard is there's no way that my seven or eight-year-old child could have done what they've suggested. There's no way that a seven or eight-year-old child could have sexually assaulted this 12-year-old girl. Um, and so I, it's, for me, that moment spoke volumes about how we don't spend time in communities like the south side of Chicago. It turns out the police ended up re eventually releasing these boys, and there was a guy who had been already been convicted of or arrested for rape uh, one other time who was convicted of that crime. But, but you're right. I mean, I think that what's important is that we spend time in places that, other than our own, that feel unfamiliar. I mean, it's part of the essence of what we do or should be doing. 
So let me take one more question and then we'll. I feel like on these immersion reporting projects, it's one thing to get a person to agree to an interview and say, yeah, sure, you can, you can be part of my life, but it's another thing to actually get them calling you and telling you when something's happening. Right. Yeah. I find oftentimes that, you know, I'll, I'll send them an email or a phone call and they'll be like, oh yeah, I just had this, you know, I went right. to this meeting or I had this event that they just never think to inform you about. Right. Do you have kind of a method of how you stay on top of them or involved? No, because Pete, you're absolutely right. I mean, the bottom line is, we're, we're the kind of the least important thing in people's lives. And in fact, what often happens is, you know, we can't get people to return phone calls and you think, oh my God, they hate me. They don't want to work with me anymore. When in the end, really, they just got, like anybody else, they have so much going on in their lives that you're just the least important. Um, so no, the, the, you know, it's the old Woody Allen adage. I mean, the thing that's most important is to show up, you know, just to go there. So like with with Harper, you know, I asked that of Anita and Crystal, but in the end, they never called. So I just tried to get there as often as I could and tried to learn of things that might be unfolding. Um, so, no, I mean, this scene with Flamo was kind of unusual. Kobe was, Kobe was one of the few people I've ever worked with who was just kind of on the ball in that case. Uh, he used to refer to us as his film crew. He'd say, my, my film crew is with me. And, uh, um, but beyond that, no, you're right. I mean, I think you just need to show up and, and be there. So, hey, thanks, guys. Keep on telling stories. So.